When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. fought as if with the strength of God. No, as if there. They didn't have enough strength on the arm of flesh to fight with. It had to be God's strength. Yea, never were men known to have fought with such miraculous strength. And with such mighty power did they fall upon the Lamanites that they did frighten them. No wonder the Lamanites surrendered, scared to death of the deacon's quorum. I would be too. And thus ends their first campaign. Their second takes place in chapter 57. This is now taking the city of Antipara and then defending the city of Cumani. Now what happens here in verses 1 through 5 is Amaron offers to them the city of Antipara if they would just deliver up the prisoners of war. Remember our first part of the lesson, Amaron and Moroni had been working out some details on prisoner exchange, which eventually Moroni cut short. Well, here Amaron is trying something similar. I'll give you this city if you give me back my men. But I love Helaman's response. Verse 2, I sent an epistle unto the king that we were sure our forces were sufficient to take the city of Antipara by our force. And by delivering up the prisoners for that city, we should suppose ourselves unwise, that we would only deliver up our prisoners on exchange. You see Helaman's thought process here. Oh, I think we can get it on our own. So we would end up with both your city and your prisoners of war. You see, that's a win-win for us. So no exchange necessary. It would be unwise for us to give you any added strength. And that proved to be the wise course because this was all a bluff on Amaron's part. Verse 3, as soon as they start making preparations to go fight Antipara, then in verse 4, the people in that city leave it. They flee to another city. And thus the city of Antipara fell into our hands. Strong enough to capture it, they didn't even have to fight for it. It just came their way. I think that's often the case when we'll stand up for something. Showing strength sometimes excuses us from having to actually exercise it. That was the case here. Or if you flip it around and look at things from Amaron's side, what was he doing? He was offering them something that he had no power to defend. Or stated differently, he was offering them something that was about to become theirs anyway. Does that sound a little like... Temptation number three at the Mount of Temptations, when Satan says to Jesus, Worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I picture Jesus just kind of looking at him thinking, those are going to be mine someday anyway. I can wait for the millennium. When the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If I'm patient, they will come to me in the right way. You're only banking on my impatience that I want to get them the wrong way. I often think about that in terms of the rising generation, specifically concerning intimacy, with Satan constantly throwing things in their face, saying, you can have this right now. And the wise and restrained youth saying, no, thank you. I will wait and receive it in the right way and in the right time. Whether those relationships come in this life or the next, they will come. God has promised me those blessings. Why would you offer me something that has already been promised me from a higher source? Well, in verse 6, some time has passed after they've captured Antipara bloodlessly. They receive a fresh supply of provisions and also an addition to our army from the land of Zarahemla, another 6,000 men. And then this great detail, and 60 of the sons of the Ammonites who had come to join their brethren 
my little band of 2,000. We usually talk about the 2,000 stripling warriors. I love that officially there's 2,060. And where were these 60 during the first deployment? I have no idea. I picture them singing in one last primary program. They've just graduated from primary, and their first youth activity is not trek, it's battle. Not youth conference, it's youth conflict. And we thought church basketball was bad. But we've seen this several times. Success breeds more success. Courage encourages others. And to think the example these 2,000 are setting, so that this next group, the Weebelows, if we still ran the scouting program, are ready to join the ranks. I want to be like my big brothers. I want to join them in the battle someday. Now their next objective is to gain the city of Cumani. For this one, they're not going to do a decoy run. Instead, verse 8, they're going to surround the city by night a little before they were to receive a supply of provisions. That way we can cut them off from receiving those added supplies. Verse 9, we did sleep upon our swords. We kept guards. The Lamanites kept trying, many times it says, to fall upon them by night and slay them. But we were always able to push them back. You see, basically what they're attempting is siege warfare. If we can cut them off, that's the phrase used in verse 11, being cut off from their support, we'll just starve them out. Eventually they'll have to surrender. Verse 12, not many days had passed away before the Lamanites began to lose all hopes of succor. So they yielded up the city into our hands. Their siege strategy proved successful. Now by that time, they've got so many prisoners in verse 13 that it takes all hands on deck just to guard them all. Verse 14, they would break out in great numbers. They would fight with stones and clubs, anything they could get their hands on. So essentially, the fighting is still continuing even after the surrender of the city. It's just now against prisoners instead of combatants. Now they've got to figure out what to do. Verse 16 describes these as critical circumstances. What are we going to do with all these POWs? Well, Amaron has a plan for them. Free them from the enemy and bring them back into his own armies. So he sends a massive, a numerous army after them. And a huge battle takes place that again involves the stripling warriors. Verse 19, behold, my little band of 2060 fought most desperately. Interesting adverb there. But it's not just desperation. Notice the next one. Yea, they were firm before the Lamanites. Verse 20, as the remainder of our army was about to give way before the Lamanites. So see the comparison here. These grown men, these battle-hardened, war-weary soldiers were about to give way. And yet the 2060, they were firm. No giving way among them. They were firm and undaunted. Can we be desperate and undaunted at the same time? They were. We saw firmness in 19. We saw firmness in 20. We'll see firmness again in 27. And their firmness was a result of their faith. Verse 27 says, Now this was the faith of these of whom I had spoken. They are young and their minds are firm. They do put their trust in God continually. The only other person I can remember talking about firmness of mind was Jacob, Nephi's little brother, the one that talks about his own anxiety more than any other writer. I think it's so fitting that he, talking to the victims, the women and children that were victimized by unchaste fathers and husbands, he tells them twice in Jacob chapter 3 to seek firmness of mind. Don't let your mind go down those paths. You've got to control your thoughts, especially whenever depression or desperation rears its head. Their firmness was part of their faith. It was part of their trust in God, which they placed in him continually. But this is another place where faith without works would leave them dead. And so take their firmness and faithfulness and then go back to verse 21. Yea, they did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. We talk about military precision. And why is that such an institutional priority in the military? Because lives are on the line. In some ways, this totally stands to reason. Why would the stripling warriors be so exactly obedient? Because they're in war and they've never fought before. 
I think one of the things that keeps us from exact obedience is thinking we know better ourselves. Well, I know that's what God suggests, but, but this is going to work for me. In those instances, our own experience tends to work against us. We think we know well enough. Well, the stripping warriors had no experience in battle. Again, never played with swords as kids. And so you picture them saying to Helaman, we will do anything and everything you tell us to. How does this work? What am I supposed to do? I, I won't think outside the box because I don't know anything outside the box. I don't even know anything in the box. And this is life or death. So you tell me what to do. I will do exactly as you say. Do we see our own spiritual survival in similar terms? Life and death. Exact obedience. And it was done according to their faith. So here's faith and works together in the same verse. I did remember the words which they said unto me that their mothers had taught them. And crediting those mothers for what the boys learned and did, in verse 22, he then credits those boys for the victory. It is these my sons, along with the fellow troops that were sent to assist us, to whom we owe this great victory. Now, 23, they retained their city, but it came at incredible cost. And so in 24, he immediately gives orders unto his men to go search out the wounded and help them, separate them from the dead, dress their wounds. 25 is such a famous and miraculous verse. It came to pass that there were 200 out of my 2,060. It's almost 10% casualties here who had fainted because of the loss of blood. Nevertheless, according to the goodness of God and to our great astonishment, which means this was not what anyone expected, also to the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. That's the detail we usually remember. But equally important is the last detail. Yea, and neither was there one soul among them who had not received many wounds. You see, technically, a casualty is not just someone who dies in the battlefield. It's someone who is injured, wounded. So it wasn't 10% casualties. It was 100% casualties. But all of that 100% was injury. 0% was death. Now, it could have been up to 10% death if they fainted because of the loss of blood and Helaman hadn't sent men out there to find the wounded and separate them from the dead and dress those wounds then the wounded probably would have ended up dead, bleeding out on the battlefield. And who was it that went out to save them? Fellow wounded warriors. That's all they've got. I remember hearing from a state president once, talking about the youth that were coming in to have interviews for missions and temples and so on. And he said, every single one of them has issues and things that they need to repent of. And then he said, we're not winning this war. And I remember that really striking me with these verses ringing in my ears. As I thought, actually, President, the fact that they're coming to talk to you, to confess their sins, says to me that we are winning a war that really matters. Repentance is the ultimate weapon of victory, and they're wielding it in spite of the wounds that they've suffered, that we've all suffered. None of us will make it through this war unscathed. But just because we're all wounded doesn't mean we have to die. What will it take? Dressing wounds, recognizing that the wounded are not dead, that there is hope for us all and fellow wounded warriors going out among the battlefield to help people home. When the righteous, when the redeemed assemble in heaven in full dress uniform, upon every single chest will hang the purple heart. No one goes through life unwounded, but neither are we unremembered by fellow sufferers who come to our rescue and bind up our wounds. Even he, the lone soldier who suffered no self-inflicted wounds, fittingly he alone bears scars even after resurrection to show that he took upon himself our wounds and bears them all for us, just as he bore us off the battlefield. Verse 26, this preservation was astonishing to our whole army. Again, no one expected this. 
After all, a thousand of our brethren were slain. And please do not assume that they were unworthy of similar miracles as we've seen several times through these war chapters. The perspective the righteous had even on the slain was one of hope and confidence, a faith in God and the resurrection. Even among those thousand, there was less cause to mourn than others might think. And we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God, not to the arms of these stripling warriors. It was because of their faith, their exceeding faith in that which they had been taught to believe that there was a just God, notice that, not just a merciful God, it's not just his mercy that will save you, but to be saved by his justice, that we have kept every word with exactness and exercised our faith, that just God, whosoever did not doubt that they should be preserved by his marvelous power. If only we all had that faith and that firmness. You see, you can compare that to the report that Helaman received from one of the leaders that was transporting all these POWs that was initially attacked by the Lamanites. You see in verse 31 and 32, when the Lamanite armies came and some of the Nephites' own soldiers started to cry out, they will fall upon them, yea, they will destroy our people. That fear, just like faith can be contagious, fear can be as well. And as fear seemed to spread throughout the Nephite troop, look at 32, came to pass that our prisoners did hear their cries, which caused them to take courage, and they did rise up in rebellion against us. We have to be careful not to let our fear inspire our enemy's courage. Let our faith inspire the faith of others. We see that kind of faith in chapter 58, the third of the three offensives that the stripling warriors were a part of. This one is to try to conquer the city of Manti. Now, verse 1, we see this is their next object, but they can't decoy them out. The Lamanites remember what happened the first time. They remembered that which we had hitherto done. Therefore, we could not decoy them away from their strongholds. Yesterday's tactics won't work for today's challenges. No wonder we need to be open to continual revelation. What they end up doing instead is actually somewhat similar to prior strategies. A little bit different, though. What ends up happening is the Nephite army splits into three groups. Stripling warriors are one of them. But the other two groups hide in the wilderness. So it looks like all that the Nephites remain are this small band of inexperienced soldiers, kind of easy pickings. So the army that's there in the city of Manti comes out to chase down and engage with the stripling warriors, who turn and flee. That's their favorite military maneuver. That only makes the Lamanite army more excited, but as they're going, the stripling warriors head towards Zarahemla. And so the Lamanite army is like, oh no, we can't pursue them into the capital city of the Nephites. So let them go. We'll just go back and return to Manti. Unbeknownst to them, as they'd run between those two other armies, as soon as they were out of sight, those two come back to Manti. The Lamanites had made the catastrophic error of going all in on offense and doing very little by way of defense. They overcommitted to one strategy. And the other two parts of the army march into Manti, take it bloodlessly, and are ready and waiting for the Lamanite army to return. Now, it's been a long march, and so the Lamanites camp for the night, but the stripling warriors do not. It's amazing how many of these battles have been won by nighttime exertion. Tiancum's commando raids, Moroni arming the prisoners within, or Moroni making his ladders in haste and letting the army in over the wall inside the enemy city. Well, here it's the stripling warriors pulling the all-nighter. In verse 25, it was night, they pitched their tents, for the chief captains of the Lamanites had supposed that the Nephites were weary because of their march. I'm sure they were, but not so weary that they stopped fighting. Supposing that they had driven their whole army, therefore they took no thought concerning the city of Manti. It's interesting. They supposed, they were supposing, they took no thought. Those assumptions spell disaster to the Lamanites. Verse 26, when it was night, I caused that my men should not sleep. Again, if you've ever been a leader at scout camp or girls camp, this doesn't seem very miraculous at all. Trying to get them to sleep is the real miracle. Well, this time, don't sleep. Let's keep marching forward. We'll go another way towards the city of Manti. And 27, because of this, our march in the nighttime, behold, on the morrow, we were beyond the Lamanites, insomuch that we did arrive before them at the city of Manti. So by then, 
All three parts of the Nephite army are there safe within the city walls, having gained the city of Manti without the shedding of blood. By the end of chapter 58, which is where Helaman ends his epistle to Moroni, we find the stripling warriors safe and sound within the walls of Manti. And as Helaman reports in 39, the Lord has supported them, yea, and kept them from falling by the sword, insomuch that even one soul has not been slain. Verse 40, yes, they've received many wounds. Nevertheless, they stand fast in that liberty wherewith God has made them free. They don't doubt his deliverance just because of some wounds along the way. They are strict to remember the Lord their God from day to day, whether in the open battlefield or safe behind the walls. They remember him. Yea, they do observe to keep three things, his statutes, his judgments, his commandments continually. Their faith is strong in the prophecies concerning that which is to come. Notice the things that he listed there, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments. And then we could add his prophecies as well. Statutes and commandments seemed synonymous to me. So I looked up statutes in the 1828 dictionary to see what it would have meant in Joseph's day. And although some definitions seem to suggest the same kind of thing as commandments, rules that are established, this definition caught my eye. A special act of the supreme power of a private nature or intended to operate only on an individual or company. Seems like commandments are meant for everyone and they're fixed and unchanging. Judgments seem to be more in the moment. God makes a judgment call. It's the difference between tactics and strategy, right? The, the strategy is this overall. It's like, here's the, here's the commandments. The tactics are in the field adjustments that need to take place. It's like, well, here's this judgment. This is what we're going to need to do. And the stripling warriors were open to that as well. And then these statutes, if we take that definition I just read, this one's more private, intended to operate just on you. It's one thing to be obedient to general principles. Another thing to be confident enough in one's relationship with the Lord, the companionship of the Holy Ghost, that individualized inspiration, personal revelation. You'll follow that as well. It's like the commandments are the iron rod. The statutes are the liahona. Spindles moving, words changing, individually tailored. And this rising generation has mastered both forms of direction. We all need to do likewise. Couple that with faith in the prophecies. It's like we started. Jesus is coming and I want to be prepared and prepare the world for that arrival. Now, before we close today, I do want to say one last thing about provisions. That came up several times among the stripling warriors, you know, the fathers sending provisions, the stripling warriors themselves trying to cut off the Lamanites from their provisions. An army's got to eat, right? And every spiritual soldier needs to find access to the bread of life and the living water to survive the war. We saw this last time when Moroni was going off inadvisedly against Pahoran, saying, where are the provisions? Where's the additional troops? Where are the reinforcements? How can you sit on your throne in a state of thoughtless stupor? Well, Helaman is struggling with that as well. I just want to bring that up before we close today, because there seems to be this tension between the center of strength, Zarahemla, and the battles that are taking place along the periphery. It's like church headquarters versus the mission field, as they often call it. And sometimes there's this tension between the two. And do the people in Utah know what we're facing out in the mission field? I was raised in California and for eight years raised my kids in Tennessee. And one approach to what we're going to see in the next few minutes is are the centers of strength, the center stakes of Zion, for example, are they sending, are we sending provisions throughout the church? But there's another way to take this more personally rather than just geographically. And this applies no matter where you happen to live. If you individually are a center of strength, in your ward or in your stake or in your branch, wherever you might be? Are you extending provisions to those that are less strong than you are? People need you. You probably know that because you probably have like seven callings right now. But stay strong. The provisions you are providing are life-saving to people that are on the fringes of faith. 
Now there's a third level to this that can make it even more personal. So not just the geographical, center stakes of Zion need to make sure that the entire body of Christ is strong. More than just within your congregation, if you are a strong member, then strengthen others. Isn't that what Jesus told Peter, right? And when thou art converted, strengthen your brethren, give out the provisions. But on a purely individual level, I think there are certain core testimonies, Zarahemla principles, that we absolutely know are true. And do we allow those core testimonies to strengthen, to provide provisions to the peripheral aspects of our faith that might be, comparatively speaking, a little weaker? Elder Holland has taught this beautifully, that the things that we do know will always trump the things that we don't know. Well, that's center strength versus questions along the frontier. So many times when I'm meeting with people that are struggling in their faith, it's the peripheral issues. I'm not sure about this aspect of church history or this doctrine I'm a little iffy on. Fine, I get it. But are there elements of your testimony that are bedrock solid? Then let that truth provide provisions to other things. It's so sad for me to see otherwise faithful members almost seeming to turn over the keys of the city of Zarahemla to someone like Amalekiah or Amaron because of peripheral issues. No, you're strong here. You know God lives, or you know Jesus is the Christ, or you know the Book of Mormon's true. Let that element of your testimony send provisions out to these other areas that you're not so sure about. It's almost like concentric circles of belief absolute knowledge in the middle, and then faith beyond, and belief, and hope, and desire. Interesting to take Alma 32 and almost make it ripples across the surface, and let your central strength spread. Send provisions. So just a few scriptural phrases that I hope will stay in our heads and hearts as we ponder that. Chapter 58, verse 3 Helaman is employing his men to the maintaining those parts of the land which we had regained of our possessions. So maintain and regain, retention and reactivation. But it became expedient that we should wait that we might receive more strength from the land of Zarahemla and also a new supply of provisions. He repeats that in verse 4 at the end, that they are waiting to receive provisions and strength from the land of Zarahemla. Strength from church headquarters, strength from strong members, strength from core elements of one's testimony. That's what we need. Unfortunately, verse 5, the Lamanites are also receiving great strength from day to day. They're also receiving provisions. This is like the Rocky Drago thing I was talking about in our first lesson this week. The arms race, the escalation. If the adversary is getting stronger, we have to get stronger at an even faster pace. Can you sense the provisions that are coming into the enemy camp? No wonder we need to provide better on the Lord's side. Verse 6, the Lamanites are sallying forth against us from time to time. No huge engagement out in the open field, just sallying forth. And we couldn't fight them because of their retreats and their strongholds. Kind of sense the enemy strategy there? Rather than a sustained attack, let's just nickel and dime them to death. A doubt here. A temptation here. Some contention, a little dissension, occasional laziness, a little bout of complacency. Just picking away at things. So much of anti-Mormonism is what I call death by a million pinpricks. Some of the most famous and recent anti-Mormon attacks, I won't dignify them by calling them by name, but they provide quantity in hopes of overcoming lack of quality. Each individual complaint can be countered. But taken as a whole, it's like this attitude is like, we can't destroy their faith, but let's just pick at it until hopefully we bleed them to death. Now, verse 7, Helaman's army is still waiting in these difficult circumstances. Many months have passed this way until they are about to perish for want of food. All the initial faith in the world will be insufficient if it is not continually fed. So are we feeding ourselves spiritually? Are we feeding others spiritually? Where are the provisions when we need them? In verse 8, they finally receive some food. 
guarded by an army of 2,000 men. But that's it. This is all the assistance which we did receive to defend ourselves and our country from falling into the hands of our enemies, yea, to contend with an enemy which was innumerable. I can't count the enemy. Sadly, I can count our friends and reinforcements. Later on in this chapter, in verse 34, it's still Helaman talking. It's going to sound a lot like Moroni when he writes to Pahoran in chapter 60. But he says in 34, Now we do not know the cause that the government does not grant us more strength. Neither do we those men who came up unto us know why we have not received greater strength. We don't know. The reinforcements don't even know. Now in 35, he gives them the benefit of the doubt, which is more than Moroni did. He says, maybe you're not succeeding in your area and you need more of the forces in that way. If so, we do not desire to murmur. We're not trying to complain here. But he does make an interesting admission in verse 36 at the end. We know that they are more numerous than that which they have sent. Where is everybody? We get so excited to talk about the growing numbers of missionaries that are out in the field. They're a drop in the bucket compared to what there could be if every stripling decided to become a stripling warrior. We know that they are more numerous than that which they have sent. I felt that way visiting some of these scattered branches in rural areas when I lived in the South, or tiny struggling branches that I served in in the mission field. Where is everyone? And then you open the area book and you see the lists of less actives and go, oh, that's the strength that could be strengthening this group of saints. I know there's more than what's coming. Again, on the purely individual level, I know there's more I could be doing, more strength I could be providing myself, greater access to the power of heaven. I know there's more than what I've got. He even wonders in verse 36 at the beginning, maybe there's some faction in the government. Maybe that's causing the problem. It's exactly what the problem was. Pahoran will later let us know that, right? But I'm amazed at what Helaman calls this in the middle of it all. Go back to verse 9, Alma 58, verse 9. He's just been describing how small the reinforcements are to contend with an innumerable enemy. And he calls it an interesting word in verse 9. And now the cause of these, our embarrassments, or the cause why they did not send more strength unto us, we knew not. But it grieved us. It filled us with fear, lest by any means the judgments of God should come upon our land to our overthrow and utter destruction. Remember, Moroni was grappling with the same feelings, sorrowing, doubting even, because of the iniquity of the people. Well, Helaman's feeling the same way. But what did he call it? Our embarrassments. Come on. We're trying to win a war here. This is an army for crying out loud. And we can only number it in the thousands? Are you serious? I'm embarrassed. Flat out embarrassed that we're not more strong than we are. When there are so many sources of strength all around us. Well, come to our rescue. Come to our aid. I don't want to hurt any feelings or come across more strongly than I should. I don't want my heads to flip tails on this one. But frankly... I sometimes wonder if we should be a little more embarrassed by our lack of spiritual strength when opportunities to strengthen it lie all around us. I'm only pointing fingers at myself here, but I hope we'll each take a Lord is it I moment and wonder if I ought to be embarrassed that I'm not doing more. Don't get overzealous on me. No toxic perfectionism here. But if you can honestly, soberly, seriously, even confidently weigh your strengths and weaknesses, weigh how many provisions you're bringing into your own life, should there be any embarrassment in the way we feel about ourselves? You see, I get that sense from chapter 60. This is now Moroni going off on Pahoran. But chapter 60, verse 21, it's part of that naive faith that was Possibility number three, that when Moroni was trying to brainstorm, why isn't the government giving us more provisions? But notice the end. I didn't emphasize this phrase. I was saving it for now. 
21. Do you suppose that the Lord will still deliver us while we sit upon our thrones? And here's the phrase. And do not make use of the means which the Lord has provided for us. That's the phrase. Those means are more than what we have got, more than we use anyway. Those means are all around us. I seriously have people coming out of the woodworks, emailing, texting, instant messaging me, asking me for help in certain spiritual dilemmas. And I will help with every spare minute I can muster. But please, brothers and sisters, we must make use of the means which God has provided. Are we giving God equal time? We have questions about church history. Have we read any of the resources? We're struggling with sin. Well, are we fortifying our faith? We are surrounded by sources of strength. They're a click and a scroll away. We just have to make use of the means. It breaks my heart when a young person comes struggling with the questions of the soul. As I think, we just talked about this in Institute. Why don't you come? Or someone will email me a question. And the answer was just given in a recent conference talk. Do we read them? Again, I, I don't believe in guilt trips. I'm not the travel agent for those. But could we just sit for a moment with those two phrases? To make use of the means God has given us to strengthen ourselves spiritually. And the fact that it is an embarrassment when we don't. I hope that you're hearing this in the spirit. I'm trying to convey it. I'm not trying to shame anyone or guilt anyone. I'm trying to encourage us all to do something, to make use of the means that are all about us. Why do you think Moroni keeps talking about slothfulness and neglect? That's why he says in verse 24 of his diatribe against Bahoran that we have to be up and doing. That's such a great phrase. Add that to the list that we're developing. How do we overcome those embarrassments of spiritual weakness? We get up and we get going. We make use of the means. In verse 29, he uses another great phrase we could add to the list. Behold, it is time. Yea, the time is now at hand that except ye do bestir yourselves in the defense of your country and your little ones. It's a great phrase. To bestir yourself. Well, the enemy is stirring us up to anger against one another. Are we bestirring ourselves from inaction to action? Remember, it was strength and activity that described the stripling warriors. They were up and doing. Even during the nighttime, they made use of the means. There was nothing about that army that was embarrassing at all. In the meantime, while Moroni's army and Helaman's army were waiting for those provisions to arrive, go back and notice this detail in chapter 58. In verse 14, the Lamanites had sent spies to discover the number and the strength of our army. That's interesting. Those are the two details they wanted. What are their numbers and what is their strength? Well, you can count one. You can enumerate the number. But the strength? Hmm, that's a tough one to gauge. Verse 15, Helaman seems to distinguish between the two. It came to pass that when they saw that we were not strong according to our numbers. It's a great distinction. Oh yeah, if you're just talking about numbers, we're not strong at all. If you're talking about strength, well yeah, we have some different criteria to measure by. No abacus needed for this one. Our strength doesn't lie in our numbers, which is good since we don't have many. You guys, in fact, are the exact opposite. Your numbers are innumerable, he says just a few verses earlier. But your strength? Eh, not so much. Your numbers scare me to death. Your lack of spiritual strength is what reassures me that we can probably beat you anyway. Meanwhile, our numbers probably don't intimidate you at all. But those numbers are deceiving. They do not reflect our strength. And where is that strength coming from? Same chapter. Go forward to 32 and 33. Behold, our armies are small to maintain so great a number of cities and so great possessions. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. 
But behold, we trust in our God who has given us victory over those lands. That's the source of strength. Those are the ultimate means that we need to make use of. Later in verse 37, right after worrying and wondering, where is everybody? We know they're more numerous than what they've sent. Verse 37, great faith here. But behold, it mattereth not. That's just numbers anyway. We trust God will deliver us, notwithstanding the weakness of our armies. Yea, and deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. That's where the victory is going to come from. Go back a page, and in chapter 58, verse 10, we did pour out our souls in prayer to God. That beats boot camp any day. That he would strengthen us and deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. Yea, and also give us strength that we might retain our cities and our lands and our possessions for the support of our people. Remember, that's what Pahoran had encouraged Moroni to do in the meantime, while we're gathering troops and regaining the government. In the meantime, leave Lehi and Teancum with your blessing. Encourage them to rely on the strength of the Lord. That will be sufficient means in the meantime. Verse 11 and 12 is then one of my favorite passages in all the war chapters. Because as they pour out their souls in prayer to God, as they're seeking the kinds of heavenly provisions that only he can send, verse 11, it came to pass that the Lord our God did visit us with assurances. I love that phrase. And I love that the assurance constitutes a visit from God. He is here with us because he is here assuring us. The Spirit is that comforter and that encourager. I know all will be well. God has visited us. He's visited us with assurances. And once those assurances have come, those promises, those reassurances that all will be well, it's like Hebrews 12, seeing we are encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. We've got our own cheering section. We're right in the middle of it. How can we not win the race that we're set out to run? How can we not lay aside every sin which doth easily beset us? Forward, on to the victory. God is with us. He's just paid us a visit. And what do those assurances do? Yea, he did speak peace to our souls and did grant unto us great faith and did cause us that we should hope for our deliverance in him. And we did take courage with our small force which we had received and were fixed with a determination to conquer our enemies and to maintain our lands. That's what comes with the Lord's assurances. When the Spirit comes to let us know that we can rest assured, that God's promises are sure. You see the same root in all of those words? Sure, assured, assurance, reassurance. That's what comes of the Lord's assurance. Peace and faith and hope and courage and determination. If you feel that you are failing or faltering, please seek the Lord's assurance. May he visit you with those assurances so that peace can replace anxiety, so that faith can crowd out doubt and hope can replace despair, so that courage will drive away fear and determination will remain in its place. This is the cause of Christ. And when you are assured of that, then you have strength beyond any numbers. Well, here the war chapters come to an end, though the wars themselves don't. Those will continue in Helaman and 3rd Nephi. They'll color the conclusion of 4th Nephi. They'll be a key ingredient of the book of Ether and describe the final days of Mormon and Moroni. The wars rage on. We're living through them. It's what makes one of these final verses so applicable in our situation. It's chapter 62, verse 41. This is the two-edged sword of war. 
Behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, the even longer war between good and evil that we're all continually engaged in, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war. That is one result of these conflicts, but it's not the only result. Here's the other possibility. And many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depth of humility. Which of those two outcomes will describe us? The wars that are being waged all around us and within us, are they hardening us or softening us? Preparing us for defeat or a glorious victory? I guess the real question is, which side will we end up on? We know which side wins. The choice is ours. In the short term, in chapter 62, peace is once again established in the land. Captain Moroni retires, passing the command down to his son Moroniha. Pahoran returns to the judgment seat. Helaman returns to preaching the gospel and regulating the church. Prosperity returns. And this time, thankfully, miraculously, without pride to accompany it, though that won't last very long. Preview of the book of Helaman. How do they hold pride at bay in the meantime? 62 verse 50, they did remember how great things the Lord had done for them. And that's one thing those wars provided God with in abundance, opportunities for him to do great things. By the time chapter 63 begins, Helaman passes away, first passing the plates on to his brother Shiblon. His strengths far outweighed his weaknesses after all. He kept his coins head up. Moroni passes away. Later in this chapter, Shiblon dies. Corianton has gone northward with another group of colonizers. The plates are then passed back to Helaman's immediate line, going down to his son Helaman meaning that that generation of brothers has now passed on. Helaman, Shiblon, Corianton. Verse 12 and 13, the word of God is preserved and proclaimed. And 14 and 15, dissenters once again arise, stir up the Lamanites, and more wars begin. Oh, these treasured but short periods of peace. So don't let your weapons get rusty. We'll need them again in Helaman next week. But one thing that does take place in chapter 63 that I find fascinating, especially in terms of its placement in the narrative, is a man named Hagoth, we know so little about him, builds some ships and starts to launch out into the West Sea. Initially, those ships come back and more people boarded them and head off into new directions. Eventually, they're never heard of again. It'd be fascinating to know their stories more. In fact, it was funny. I remember when we first moved to Tennessee, my oldest daughter, who was something of a child prodigy in my opinion, I know every parent feels that way, but she was incredibly well-read and really smart from a very early age. She still amazes me. But we were moving to Tennessee. She would have been five years old. We're driving across country, going from state to state to state and seeing the signs at each border, welcome to whatever state we happen to be driving into. And my five-year-old daughter, piped up from the back seat of the minivan saying, Dad, how do they make maps? And I said, that's a great question, Eden. A lot of times it was initially explorers and things that would just travel around and try to draw coastlines and just map out things. And I hear this cute little five-year-old voice from the back seat going, explorers? You mean like Hagoth? And I sat there in utter disbelief. I don't think we did any family home evening lessons or flannel board stories on Hagoth, this obscure character mentioned in one chapter in the Book of Mormon. I just tried to keep a straight face and go, well, of course, Eden, yes, just like Hagoth. Well, wherever he went and whatever he discovered, I find it fascinating that it came at the end of these war chapters. Once peace has been achieved, once we have gained the victory self-mastery. New horizons will open up to us to go to places, spiritually speaking, that we've never been to before. There's not even a need to map it, Hagoth. Just follow the Savior's lead. The Prince of Peace will pave the way 
beyond those new horizons. Can I close today and close these war chapters with a statement from President Gordon B. Hinckley? It actually would have been Elder Hinckley back then. This was during the Vietnam War. On assignment from the church, he flew into Vietnam. This is 1967 to try to encourage, to visit with assurances the LDS troops that were there. He said that shortly after his aircraft landed, an admiral landed in a similar kind of plane, but his was accompanied with five helicopters flying shotgun around him with Marines fingering machine guns. Talk about the difference between numbers and strength, right? President Hinckley only had one. But when he came home, after having spent time with stripling warriors on the front lines of a war they didn't ask for, this is what he said. I thought as I talked with them that they ought to be in school, acquiring creative and challenging skills rather than walking fearsome patrols in the dark of the ancient jungle, where death comes so quickly and quietly and definitely. These are the kids who ran and laughed and played ball back home, who drove the highways in old jalopies, who danced with lovely girls at the golden green balls, who administered the sacrament on Sunday. These are boys who come from good homes, where the linen is clean and showers are hot, who now sweat night and day in this troubled land, who are shot at and who shoot back, who have seen gaping wounds in a buddy's chest and who have killed those who would have killed them. And then President Hinckley said this, and I thought of the terrible inequality of sacrifice involved in the cause of human liberty. The moment we shift from physical battles to spiritual struggles, we see all the more clearly the terrible inequality of sacrifice involved in the cause of eternal liberty. In these war chapters, Moroni gave so much, Helaman gave so much, the stripling warriors and their mothers and fathers gave so much. Tiancum offered the full measure of self-sacrifice. But spiritually speaking, the greatest inequality of sacrifice in eternity is that of the Savior Jesus Christ, who gave an offering both infinite and eternal to assure our liberty. I testify of him. He is the chief captain. It is his cause in which we are engaged. As it says on the Korean War Memorial in Washington, D.C., freedom is not free. Just ask Jesus about the price. May we count that cost and consecrate ourselves accordingly, forward and not backward, and on, on to the victory.